Hi, I'm Mark Renner. This is Victory Over Sin. Saturday afternoon to you. My name is Mark Rennick. This is Victory Over Sin. And Victory Over Sin, I'm going to take a second to explain to you what we are attempting to do and who actually pays for it. Victory Over Sin is actually funded by an advocacy arm of St. Vincent de Paul of Southwest Idaho. And what we attempt to do is to educate you, the Idahoan, about what it's like to be incarcerated here in the state, to come out of incarceration and return back to community. We do that in several different ways. Certainly one of them is this radio show. It's the most popular by far. Uh, we've been doing this for about six and a half years now. If you go back to the archives of KBXL or anywhere that you listen to your podcast, look up Victory Over Sin. You can go back and listen to all the past shows. And in those past shows, you will see directors of the par- Department of Corrections. You'll see state legislators. You will see advocacy groups. You will see groups who work with people coming out of incarceration. We've got a governor. We've got some national people on there. Uh, It's a good body of work, if you will, to understand what the Department of Corrections here in Idaho does and who supports those of us who have been incarcerated. In addition to that, we also have a PowerPoint presentation that we are happy to bring to your church group, to your service group, to your neighborhood association, anybody that wants to get together and talk about life after incarceration. We're happy to do that. The great thing about this is that it is led by a returning citizen themselves. So they'll give the PowerPoint presentation, and then they're there to answer questions about uh, those events and how that happened in their life. Uh, At the end of the show, I'll let you know how to get in touch with me, and you can get uh, request any of these things or seek more information from us if you need to. If you've been listening to me over the years, you know that certainly the work we've done has expanded. We now have two locations in the Treasure Valley area. The main one is in Boise at 3217 West Overland Road, in which we try to greet everybody coming out of incarceration each day from the state prison system. We encourage you to come by the first day. We'll hook you up with foods, with uh, bus passes, with clothing vouchers. We have a food pantry adjacent to the facility. Uh, we have four people on staff who work primarily with employment only. Happy to help you in all those things. In addition, if you do not have a ride from incarceration, have your case manager send me an email. We will pick you up and actually run you through the first couple of days as you return to community. Those are options that are available to you, and we are busy doing that. The other location I didn't mention is over in Canyon County, and it is located inside Probation and Parole, District 3. Uh, It's a little bit limited in terms of a force over there. I don't have as many staff, but if you go in there and you ask for Reentry from St. Vincent de Paul, they'll hook you up and help you in the same manner. Uh, lots of good things are going on this year. It's been a busy year. As you know, uh, this will be taped after probably the state is about to uh, execute our first person that we haven't executed in a long period of time. So we're kind of all waiting to see if that happens, has happened. But by the time this show airs, it should have happened. 
And uh, we're in some discussion about that and what that's done to the prison system because it throws a hex over the whole system here out in Boise where all the prisons are located. If you need information about this program or anything else, you can go to my website. It's www.svdpid.org. Click reentry, and all those questions should be there. Uh, I'm excited to have a friend of mine on who I've known for a period of time. We're in the same organization, and it's going to get to hear his story. And we'll be right back to do that in one minute. Idaho has an incarceration rate of 761 per 100,000 people, including prisons, jails, immigration detention, and juvenile justice facilities, meaning that it locks up a higher percentage of its people than any democratic country on earth. This program works to continue the discussion centered on informing Idahoans for the need to understand not just the numbers and costs of incarceration, but the emotional burden the process does to families of those incarcerated. 98% of all residents incarcerated at the present time will return to our community. We welcome a dialogue about the support for this population. Please get involved or contact us for additional information. Okay, as I mentioned uh, this afternoon, I'm honored to have a friend of mine named William K. Sanzing Jr. on. He is an author, returning citizen advocate. He also is an alumni of an organization that I'm a part of, too, called Just Leadership USA. William, thank you for being on the radio with me. Thank you, Mark. It is a tremendous honor to be here with you just to share a little bit about my journey and the unexplainable opportunities I've had um, before, during, and after incarceration. Tell us a little bit about your background first and where you were born. We can pick up your accent so we know it's from the South, but... That's true. I, um, <clears throat> I've had the um, good fortune to travel and do work in all 48 contiguous states and some other places. And I never have to, um, it, 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 it's almost impossible not to reveal probably where I'm from when I begin to speak. So hopefully we've learned to use that as to an advantage at this stage of life. But I grew up in the southeastern part of the country, uh, specifically in north-central Mississippi. I grew up on a, a, a relatively large agricultural farm and business that, um, that grew um, unexplainable to levels that were unsustainable, um, and, you know, which, um, which led to the choices I made that, um, that landed me in prison. You know, I'm, I'm intrigued by the difference, because you and I are part of an organization that kind of supports people who have been incarcerated and helps them be better leaders. But as we all get together, I'm always intrigued by the different backgrounds of people that come together that have been incarcerated. Does that ever cross your mind in terms of the variety of people coming from all different walks of life? It does. And and maybe this is kind of tempered from, you know, some of my experiences. Um you know, it, 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 in a way, it's hard for me to think about that outside the context of addiction, um, because addiction is no respecter of persons and, you know, connections to the legal criminal system is no respecter of persons. So um, I, I guess I, I think about it some, but, you know, my journey has... Um, it maybe has made me not think about it a whole lot. Um, whatever that, whatever that experience, no, whatever that experience has been, it led you to do what not many people do. You've written a book, so 
The book is called Beyond Prison. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, <clears throat> the um, you know the, the book was grew from seeds that were planted um, actually in my first night in prison. Um, the way I usually tell that story, you know, I, I felt like um, even though I certainly did what I was accused of doing, I, I, I did not know I'd done anything illegal. I maybe I should have. But I didn't. Um, unethical, maybe. I didn't know I'd done anything illegal, though. And so I felt like very little was going like people had told me it would after my choices became known. Um, but I was in the federal system. They originally promised me, you know, a low-level security institution to serve my sentence. And then for some reason, the paperwork got mixed up or something. And um, I ended up uh, being told to self-report to the Atlanta Penitentiary Complex. So I self-reported there, and, um, you know, they they first said, we don't have a record of you uh, being here, but <clears throat> come on in, we'll get you processed. But my first night there was very much like um, Andy Dufresne's first <laughs> first night right, in Shawshank, right. if, you're, if anybody's seen that. I think everybody that's been incarcerated um, has seen that movie, yeah. And, you know, a fight broke out, and um, I felt like it was chaos. I was um, I was afraid. Um, I was, you know, afraid in every kind of sense of the word. And a, a, a large gentleman came by and said, I'm from the Christian community, and we're going to take care of you until you learn how to take care of yourself. And then gave me some things I would need to survive. And I remember in my brain, I mean, I, I, remember, I, I remember a very vivid um, feeling of like a mental shift or a spiritual shift that, wait, this is what community is supposed to look like and how a healing community is supposed to function. And I kind of in that moment, even though I had another moment uh, about a year and a half before, I felt like it was another kind of marker, drive a stake in the ground moment of a, of a, of a new life and a new direction. I just felt like, in the way that might progress, that if I ever had the opportunity to write about the journey in front of me, I would do that. And then shortly after being released, um, I had a chance interaction with a childhood friend who did not know I had been to federal prison, and he had a very distinct, sharp voice, and I can still hear his voice you know, they, you know, kind of shouting that he, he had no idea I'd been to the pen. And, you know, he asked me to come by his place of business for some time and just talk about it. And we were extremely close growing up. Um, we were both active in, in our church communities, and um, we were not far from the same age. And just, um, you know, we, we were just real close as, 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 as young adults or as, as, as teenagers. And just through the telling of my story with him and fleshing it out, it just planted the seeds to, you know, depending on how life evolved, if I ever had the opportunity, I would write about all this stuff. And and, and things happened, and, you know, again, I've had unexplainable opportunities, and then it just, uh, some of them particularly around community and the value of a healing community. So I got the opportunity about two years ago to join a writing community, and through that, we just ended up writing and publishing and putting our book out there. So tell us the title and tell us how we can get it. 
Um, it's beyond prison, finding second chances through grace, resilience, and community. And it's available on Amazon or, you know, if, if any organization wanted to buy, you know, multiple copies, it's available on Ingram Sparks. Or they can contact me at um, beyondprison2023 at gmail.com, and I'll be glad to get them a copy. Okay, that sounds good. You do, you make... Um I love some of the stories in terms of your adaption to the new incarcerated life. I think you describe the getting up on the top bunk and having the bar in front of you and stuff like that. <laughs> How old of a gentleman were you when you were when you reported to Atlanta, which was a which is a huge complex, right? Yes, it is a huge complex, and you know, to to be clear, you know, to your listeners. Um, you know, there is the maximum security parts, there's a medium security, and then there's a kind of low-medium kind of satellite place. And, you know, I spent um, a, a little bit of time in each section, you know, some some of them not but a day or two, but um, I did spend some time in each, in, in each part of that. Now, as the book mentions, you know, and I, I have no explanation for why, I was transferred from the Atlanta Penitentiary Complex relatively quickly to a low-level security institution. And um, at each place, I don't know if it's more accurate to say I found them or they found me, but I found a close faith community that provided the, you know, emotional, spiritual, um, and sometimes physical support to survive what I think we all go through. You know, you mentioned my stories. You know, one thing that I like to highlight is something that, you know, I know this is a faith-based program, So, I don't, and I know I'm, I may be dating myself, but, you know, Chuck Colson, to right. me, was a big leader in, yeah. you know, bringing faith into institutions and, and, and connecting our faith and how it connects to how we progress through um, an incarceration experience, but you know, Mr. I had the opportunity to meet Mr. Colson while mm. my case was working its way to a conclusion, and he told me it doesn't matter where you end up; it doesn't matter if it's the Taj Mahal. If you can't go home when you want to, it's prison and it's hard time. And I did experience that, but I also experienced a community around me that provided support and a, a, a non-judgment, non—you know—a place where shame wasn't. You know, where we where we didn't um, we didn't feel a lot of shame talking about the things we had been through, or whatever landed us there, or whatever we needed to do to move along, move move beyond it. Yeah, and for the, just for the record, Chuck Colson founded Prison Fellowship Ministries. It's now called Prison Fellowship, and so that's impressive that you actually got to meet him. I know it's still a powerful organization nationwide, and they do great things in my area, and certainly in the Pacific Northwest, but it looks like they do it all across the country. In fact, if you go back to the archives of our show, one of the former directors uh, is on the radio with us, so you can hear all about it if you want to. So that's a great organization. So that, I'm impressed that you got to meet Chuck Olson. Yeah, that was just a, that was another one of these things. You know, I really didn't highlight that a whole lot in the book, but uh, <clears throat> it was at a Promise Keepers meet, you know, uh, event, which was popular, you know, during the, you know, I guess the mid to late 90s and maybe still exists. I don't know. I just haven't searched it out, but had the opportunity to, to go to a breakfast that was sponsored by Prison Fellowship and, you know, some leading, you know, um, 
uh, ministers were there and, and Mr. Colson, and he actually gave me a big old hug, and I went home and told my wife, I said, don't touch my shoulders, and I'm not taking a shower for months. You know, I want that to stay on me as long as possible. That, but, that's that's impressive. Uh, I'm jealous of that. That's pretty cool. I, that's cool. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> you also seem to take to, uh, as I read the story, you got involved, and what well, you're not somebody who just sat around and waited for things to happen. You got involved in your environment and what you did. I noticed you worked, you came home, you kept yourself in terms of reading. Talk about that. Was that a different approach for you, incarcerated as opposed to pre-incarceration, or was that something you just adapted to? How did that work out for you? You know, I really haven't thought about that in that context, Mark, but I guess it. some of it goes back to probably foundational influences, um, you know, I grew up on a farm and, you know, and on a large farm and, and we kind of had to be resourceful. Um, but um, I also think some of it came from just, you know, I mentioned my first night in prison. My my most memorable event or, or, or life-changing moment happened when my choices became known, and again, I clearly did what I was accused of doing, you know, I, uh, there's just no other way to say it. Um, and when my choices became known, and I felt like my world was spinning out of control, in that moment, I didn't see that life would ever be any better. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I wrote about this and, and, and looped through it two or three times in the book. I... Um, you know, I lived on our farm. Um, our house was kind of nestled in a, in some woods. And I called my wife and left a message on the phone that I wouldn't be home when she got home. She knew where all the important papers were. And I went out in the woods with a gun and had the gun to my head. And I got no explanation for this. Some people might argue my mind was playing tricks on me. I don't know. Maybe it was. I just know what I heard. I heard a voice very much like that of my mother's who died when I was 12, and that's highlighted in the book as a traumatic experience that kind of set the course for my adolescent periods. But um, I heard a voice that said, William, you can't do this. Um, you need to get your butt up, dust your britches off, go in the house. I'm going to take care of you. You know, there's a better way to live. And I, in a way, I drew a, I drove a stake in the ground at that moment and said, I don't know what life has in front of me, but I'm going to do the best I can to honor that voice and that spiritual presence and whatever opportunities come forth, I'll do my best to honor any community that supports us along the way. And I think that's in large part what gave me the motivation and the energy to do the things I've tried to do over the last, what, 26 years. Right. Well, I would probably argue that they're probably very rewarding 26 years, too, despite, you know, the situation. I mean, I know that when I finally came to that, too, it was, I think, one of my situations where I was in the hole in a prison where I figured out that, you know, I hadn't been the greatest guy in the world. And I said, okay, you got the, you can take command, Lord. And and I think the world changed for me. And so it's been just a it's been busy, it's been hectic, but boy, it has never been something that I haven't wanted to face every day. And I sensed that too from you as I read the book. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And the word I use, especially at this stage of life, over and over and over, is just grateful. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I say this a lot. I, I, I currently work a lot of weekends at a treatment center, 
and I get to do a very specific group when I work on Sundays there where I try to help people in the, you know, getting ready to discharge from our treatment program, learn how to tell their stories and find healing in telling their stories. And I almost always introduce myself, and include, as I introduce myself, I include that I don't know what gratitude feels like for other people. I just know what it feels like for me. Right. And for me, it feels like my chest is just going to burst wide open because I have absolutely no explanation for the opportunities <laughs> that I've had. Um, you know, when <clears throat> um, early in the resolution of, of, of my legal situation, my wife was trying to decide if she wanted to stay with me or not, and she did. And, and you know, one thing I've learned over the years, <clears throat> had she made a different choice, I still believe God would have worked in both of our lives to bring a healing story about. But for us, we stayed together. And we were with a counselor. And during a session one time, the the therapist asked me what I was going to do with myself when this was over. And I said, I don't know. At that time, I was working at the local McDonald's and glad to have a job working at McDonald's. And I told the therapist, well... I guess I'll just flip hamburgers and be the maintenance man for as long as I can. And she said, well, I think you'd make a a halfway decent therapist. And I said, well, that's a nice idea, but I don't know how I can go to grad school with all this stuff going on. And she said, well, if I recommend you for grad school, they'll accept you in grad school. She happened to to work at the university, you know, that was in the town we moved to. And I said, okay. So she recommended me, and they accepted me, and there was a training grant that Paid my tuition, bought my books, paid me a five hundred dollar month stipend, and you know I think that opened the door yeah. to you know just a lot of opportunities that just kept stacking up on each other. Yep, I love that too because it's uh, I love that part of the book when you said that because the same thing, almost same thing happened to me. You say grateful, I always say blessed. So people will say, "How are you mm-hmm. doing?" and I'll say, "I'm blessed," and they always. Some people take a look and go, oh, really? Okay, yeah. So I like that. The grateful, though, is a good one. But I, I applied to graduate school here in, uh, to be a social worker in uh, Idaho from a maximum security prison. And everybody laughed at me, and, but I got accepted. So it was, and uh, they could not believe it when I actually, and I applied with, you know, a handwritten application, and they, they let me into NNU here, which was amazing for me. And that was the same kind of thing as a, series of events that just started to flow once I'd made that choice and I turned my life over. So I don't, I'm not surprised at all that you've been successful after, as you made those decisions going forward. Well, that's, thank you for sharing that because I, I, I had no idea about that, Mark. That is, that is, uh, that is amazing that, that, that that occurred for you. Yeah, it was um, interesting. It was God's hand was in everything after I figured it out from the hole in 2005. And I had realized that I was, I had made a promise to save my daughter's life 10 years earlier, and I wasn't keeping true with it. You know, I'd asked to save her life because she had a bleed in her left lobe of her brain. And I told him, oh, I, told, I told the Lord I'd changed my life. And I realized 10 years later in the hole that I had not fulfilled that promise. And so I felt like I was being a little bit disciplined. And once I figured all that out, then the world has been a nicer place for me, certainly. Uh, I get to go forward, get to meet people like you and hang out and uh, go forward. Uh, tell me a little bit about the difference of people that come out of our situations and are on fire to change the world and want to do things positive and the, those that don't. Do you recognize a characteristic that they have, perhaps, or what are your thoughts on all that? Yeah. 
you know, just very recently, I guess I've begun to think about that. And I, I wonder how many have some that do come out on fire to make a difference have had some sort of spiritual transformation. I mean, I, you know, I identify with a couple of recovery communities, and we talk a lot about a spiritual transformation. And once someone has a, a, a true spiritual transformation and begins to change their behaviors, I think it's a natural outgrowth of that giving back. You know, and, and, and you know, <clears throat> yes, we've got to have social supports around us. Yes, we've got to have a lot of things, but... If somebody's just willing to open their hearts and minds to, you know, kind of doing what the nice people ask them to do, I think it just breeds something that just grows and grows and grows. Um, If someone can have an experience where they begin to see life outside themselves, um, I just think it plants a seed where you just want to pay it forward. Yeah. And I think I challenge people listening to us today, if this is something you've been considering, you've been putting off, this is something to go forward and to follow. Uh, you may or may not agree with you, William, but I think the fun really comes in going forward, not necessarily knowing where the outcome is going to be for you. And if you have that in your heart that's changed and you walk towards that, you're never going to go wrong, I don't think, in terms of, pursuing the things that scare you the most. Is that something you could agree with or be involved with? I completely agree. I have rarely seen, you know, someone that commits to to going in a different direction where the forces of the universe don't line up to um, align things to to make a difference. Um, You know, one of the things... One thing I like to like to include in some of the chapters in my book is kind of a, 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 a phrase. Some of them by some of my some of the people that inform, you know, my work as a counselor. Some that just inform some things in our, you know, advocacy work. And and you know, one of, I think it was Martin Luther King that said, you know, <clears throat> our life is really defined by what we do for others. Yep. And I just think as we adopt a life of service, then it just grows and grows and grows. Well, Mr. William, I certainly thank you for spending some time with me. Uh, We've been trying to make this work for a little bit of time, but I really appreciate it. I look forward to connecting with you at some point in time when we get together again with Just Leadership USA. But uh, thank you for being my guest today, and let's try to talk more, you and me. How's that? I look forward to it, Mark. And maybe, you know, another thing is, you know, we live in a different time now than we did 25 years ago. Right. You know, there are opportunities. There are occasional opportunities that require lived experience with what we've been through. And I'm really glad that the pendulum is swinging, you know, to another place where, I think second chances seem a little more widespread now than they did before. Absolutely. absolutely. Thank you again for the opportunity, and I do look forward to connecting again. Okay. Hey, listen, William, thank you so much. You are very (laughs) welcome. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, If you need uh, more information about how to reach William or anything that we've talked about today, you can reach out to me at www.systemicchangeofid.com. 
you can send me an email at Systemic Change of Idaho. It's all spelled out there at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Systemic Change of ID. We're on Instagram, Systemic Change of ID. Heck, you can even call me on the phone if you want to. Area code 208 477 1006. Look forward to talking to you next Saturday afternoon on Victory Over Sin.